Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in a world that is so volatile and our own emotions can be so unstable and cheer us in one moment and accuse us and make us feel hopeless in the next, you are unchanging and unchanged. You are perfectly good, holy, just, merciful, wise, always faithful, always loving. We are so grateful to know you. And I'm sure, Lord, that there are people here this morning who aren't sure of you. They're not even sure you exist, but they've come to a public worship service to hear your word in hopes that you will speak to them. So I pray that you would, that you would show them all of your goodness, that if they haven't had that assurance yet, today would be the day they place their personal trust in your son, Jesus, who died for their sins and loves them more than they can ever understand this side of eternity, and certainly more than I could ever tell them. Give me grace, Lord, as I open your word, and thank you for this privilege of worshiping and studying and loving you together. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Good morning. Let's just get it out of the way. I'm aware the Dallas Cowboys lost. Thank you for mentioning it. That's not going to be on the podcast because it speaks poorly of you people to... Uh, <laughs> it's biblical. Weep with those who weep. That's what it says. I received a text message from one of my sons that said, why do we even care about sports? They only add, they only end in sadness. <laughs> yep. That's exactly how a young Dallas Cowboys fan feels. We have much more important things to cover. This morning is unusual in that in your bulletin, I've provided you a translation of the psalm we're going to study together. If you'll open your bulletin, you'll find it there. You'll find the, the customary sheet of notes is two-sided. Just want to literally get everyone on the same page first. One side has Psalm 4 on it. The other side is blank for your notes. Should you care to make notes as together we learn from God. We've begun a new series in the Psalms, and frankly, it couldn't come at a better time. The Psalms are always where God's people have turned to for comfort. Sometimes when I make a hospital visit and I'm talking to somebody who is, is really distressed, especially if their condition doesn't allow them to read the Bible for themselves, I have some things in mind that I'd like to read and pray with them about, but people in that condition specifically, I sometimes ask them, is there any part of the Bible you would like me to read to you? 90% of, of the time, they mention one of the Psalms. The reason for that is because the Psalms are so different from everything else written in the Bible. See, when you're opening that book called the Bible, you're actually walking into a library. 66 books, three different languages written across some 1,400 years and like every library, it has genres, it has sections. There's history, there are accounts of the life of Jesus called the Gospels. The Psalms are poetry. They're literally poems, they're literally songs. The Hebrew word for their name is praises. Psalm is actually a transliteration of a Greek word, it just means songs, that's what they are. They were written across some 900 years of Israel's journeying with God. And in 900 years, a lot can happen. 
Fully half of them are ascribed to David. And in David's life, you're going to see, even this morning, you're going to see changes in his temperament, things that he asks of God that are starkly opposed from one psalm to the next. In some psalms, David is despairing. In others, he's fairly bursting with joy. Why is that? Because David changes. His circumstances changed. Sometimes he's in a season of blessing. Maybe you're in one of those sweet spots where everything looks and feels amazing to you. Maybe you're more where we began two weeks ago in Psalm 13, asking God how long you must continue in your desperate situation. Because Hebrew and because the book of Psalms is written in Hebrew and because it is so old, sometimes translators have a hard time making decisions. I won't get too much into the details of why I put this specific translation in your Bible. It's just to give us an opportunity to do two things. One, to look at the exact same text, and especially to do what at least some of the Psalms were intended for Israel to do, and that is to enjoy them together. You'll see in Psalm 4, if you're looking at your notes, that this one has a title, Evening Prayer, a trusting prayer. evening prayer of trusting God, that was put there by the editors of the Bible, but what follows for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David, that's very ancient. That was actually in Hebrew. And I think it spoke to me, I've, I've been in Boston this week teaching at a little Bible college, and I'll be honest with you, I struggled with this psalm. I thought I knew what it meant, and God changed my mind about a very important part of it. I'll tell you right now that one of the reasons I struggled with it, I immediately thought I knew what it meant when I read it for the first time before I studied it a little more deeply is because it made sense to me. And the part that I didn't particularly see, if I didn't see it all at first, and the one I studied for several hours and actually asked a couple people for help, can this actually be saying what I think it's saying, is because I didn't want it to say that. Have you ever had that experience with the Bible? Because just as these psalms, these songs and praises meet you in every season and key and note and color of life, God in His Word reserves the right to correct you or to encourage you or to tell you you're on the right track, stay with it, or on the other hand, turn completely around, you're headed in the exact wrong way. Whatever is going on in David's life, he's in a great deal of trouble, and he has some people after him, hence the title, my title, Trusting God When Everyone Else Is Out to Get You. Have you felt that way? Joseph Heller is the American author that gave us the phrase, catch 22, dark sense of humor. He said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not really after you. (laughs) They could be. You may be right for once. David's not paranoid. He's not nervous. He actually has people after him. Sometimes we're told in the title of the psalm what exactly is going on in life, not in Psalm 4, but the psalm before it says that he wrote it when Absalom, his son, was after him. If you're familiar with David's life, you'll remember perhaps at least that he is the king of Israel, and like so many kings, he had ups and downs in his life. The low point was when one of his own sons took the kingdom from him with treachery and later with violence. 
And David ran for his own life to save himself from his beloved son. That's in Psalm 3. Perhaps that is still in his mind as he writes Psalm 4. There's no way to be sure, but we know that an ancient king who finds himself amazed, literally taken from the sheepfolds to rule over God's people, to stand with them in awe of God, this amazing group called Israel that God, through no merit of their own, there's nothing to recommend them. He has chosen them entirely by His grace because from Israel He's going to bring a Savior. And now in the height of their blessings, David is king, but his position, his prestige, his power, his strength has not saved him from actually being persecuted by people. Look with me in Psalm 4. Look on the notes that I've provided, the translation I've provided, which is the New American Standard Bible. And let's read together from verse 1 to verse 6. We won't read the whole thing. We'll just read the first six verses. I'll read it to you first, and then we'll read it together. David said, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He changes his audience. He talks to people. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Let's imitate ancient Israel and read this together. Verses 1 to 6. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. And the last bit of the song will leave unresolved there for a moment. We'll come to it later. David's in trouble. What are you to do when powerful people, people who can actually harm you, are after you? A lot of Americans, I think, feel that way. Some, just because it's such an anxious age, Many of us justifiably will feel at a certain time in our lives that people who have influence and can actually do us some harm have actually set themselves against us. A few months ago, I was asked to talk to a younger group of people, and the person who invited me to speak to this group said, based on her estimation, that fully a third of them were having some kind of emotional strain, and I shouldn't be surprised if, in the middle of my talk, 
one or more of them burst into tears or even left the room, and she said, it'll have nothing to do with anything you're saying or doing. They're just going through a hard time. Anybody feel like that? That's why all these colors, that's why all these emotions, that's why all these thoughts are in Scripture. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, and the implication here is that these are people of rank, people who have standing, who can do David harm. How long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Here's a great assurance to have. The Lord hears when I call to him. How do you trust God when everything is set against you? The first three verses tell me the most important thing perhaps in the passage. In those times, you must first remember that you belong to God. The human temptation has always been, and it's never been easier than it is in our age because we are connected to the internet with these wonderful devices we can keep in our pocket. And maybe you've already checked your email, maybe you have already received text messages, maybe you've made the terrible decision on a Sunday morning when you could have a peaceful morning and focus on God alone, maybe you've checked the news. <laughs> I haven't. Not this morning. I don't need to get my mind wrenched into whatever fresh slice of trouble the world, the nation, the state, the city is foisting upon us. David's in real trouble. This verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, says a great deal. David says, I don't have righteousness of my own. That can also be translated, God who declares me innocent or God who vindicates me. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Then he looks back. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. In other words, my current condition is terrible, God, but I remember one thing. You are the God who is righteous, who makes me righteous. You've relieved me in the past, and I'm now asking you again to be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? There is a special kind of pain in being falsely accused. That's why a clean conscience is so precious. Try to keep your conscience clean. When you've sinned and you've done wrong, make it right as quickly as you realize it, both with God and with people. A clean conscience, knowing that you have done no wrong, that your hands are actually clean, that you're a human being who makes mistakes, but in this instance, you have not sinned, you have not violated God or anyone else is precious to you. Famed psychiatrist said if he could relieve human beings of guilt, he thought he could get the mental hospitals empty overnight. And that's true, a, a guilty conscience is a terrible thing to live with. It's something that keeps you up at night. More on that in a minute, but David says, right now my conscience is clean. I know that the people who are after me are making what is actually an honorable thing into a reproach for me. They love things that are worthless and they aim at deception. In other words, they're lying about me. What do you do in those specific circumstances? You remember that you belong to God. Look at verse 3. In fact, read it with me off the notes. It says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself, 
The Lord hears when I call to Him. In other words, no matter what you say, God knows the truth. And He is the God who is righteous, who has given me righteousness myself. He is the God I trust to vindicate me. And that's the God who has given me relief in the past, and that's the one I'm asking now to help. You need to remember, first of all, that you belong to God. If you could take a single thought home from this sermon today, it would be that, to focus on your identity, not on your changing circumstances. If you assess your hope, your future, and your worth on circumstances, you're someone else's decision away from being miserable all the time. Have you noticed people are mean? Have you noticed that you can do your very best and have them turn it against you? Have you noticed yet that life is not fair? I think part of the current fragility and anxiety that so many people are dealing with, including that young audience some months ago, is because of an implicit belief that parents probably have passed on that life is fair. It's not. Bad news. What we call life is populated with sinful, selfish human beings made in the image of God, but who lost that relationship with God through their own sin. You're a sinner walking among sinners. How could we ever imagine that a conglomeration of people who lost sight of God could ever build a society or a structure that it would ever be fair, kind, gracious to everyone all the time? It won't be. It hurts. You can give your life away to someone and have them not love you or even thank you in return. My pastor used to say something that I never forgot. I was just a kid when I heard it for the first time, but I've seen it come true, though not in, in the exact details that he said. Some of you who have been here longer than I have will remember this. He'd say, if you choose a random person and give them a show up in, at their house every Friday for a year to give them $100, when you stop, most people will hate you. Something to that. Where's my 100 Well, you didn't deserve it in the first place. It was all grace. It was all love. But you feel very quickly entitled. Have you noticed that people very quickly feel entitled? That's half of parenting. To not feel entitled as a parent and to teach your children that they shouldn't feel entitled either. Where do you find stability in a world that actually sets itself against you, in a system that is ruined and selfish and broken? Because so many of you are here involved in ministry at Crosspoint. The old saying is that 20% of the, eight, of the people do 80% of the work. We're way past that threshold as a church. We have far more people loving, serving, giving, praying in all kinds of ministries, some of which I'd never thought of, many of which I have absolutely no talent for. But it's going forward. The work of God is being done because so many of you have given your lives a day away, a day at a time, away to other people in service. Let me warn you. If your motivation for serving other people is the gratitude and the appreciation of others, you will eventually burn out. Because people who are struggling and far from God and sinning immediately become ungrateful. 
But if your motivation is to serve the Lord and to love people because you love God and set your mind on the day when He will graciously make everything right and reward you for things that you couldn't have done without Him in the first place, you'll have fuel forever. You wait on the gratitude of people, you'll run out of steam and burn out. You ever hear people and pastors, if I can be honest, pastors are, are often, very often, the very worst about this. We cry and complain, people are so tough. Well, sure they are. That's the point. It's like doctors who don't want to see sick people. <laughs> it's like firefighters that don't like heat. Is it arduous? Of course. But human beings aren't the point. God is the point. This is why David begins with God. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Then he says to them something he's telling himself. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Remember that you belong to God, and this is a thousand years before Jesus appears. If you are following Christ, if you have turned away from your sin and you're following Jesus, you belong to a God in a way that David himself could only begin to imagine. The relationship is no less real for David than it is for us, but it's better and richer because not only has God spoken, God has come in Christ. He came among us. He was one of us. He suffered and died for us. He was tempted in every way as we are. He endured every bit of ungratitude and more that human beings could ever heap upon the righteous. He withstood it joyfully and gladly in obedience to God so that he could bring you into God's family. That's your identity and that's your security. And if nobody else knows, nobody else cares, everybody hates you, if you have the Lord, what else do you need really? Does it make it easy? No, but it makes it stable and it makes it safe. Listen, please, and read with me again a, a verse that will appear on the screen, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. This is our relationship with God now that Jesus has come. Read this with me, please. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Bask in this verse for just a little bit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And another translation says, and it adds an exclamation point because these ancient languages don't have that kind of punctuation. And that is what we are. Wow. Who are you in Christ? You are a child of God. And... In case you hadn't noticed, in case you've forgotten, in case you've wondered, God is not a bad father. He doesn't walk away from his children. He sticks up for them. He sacrifices for them. He even suffers and dies for them in the person of Jesus Christ. He vindicates them in the end so that everyone who actually knows God can call God the God of my righteousness. And here's the opposition in the same verse. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Were we expecting an easy time? Of course not. Many people are far from God. They're living as if He did not exist. 
They're not taking him into account. He's not at the top of their thoughts. He's not anywhere in their thoughts. Why did we expect that we would ever have an easier path than Jesus? Where do we find our stability and our safety that the way the Father has loved us is to actually call us His own children? So the simple counsel is this, focus on your identity, not on your circumstances. Because the faithful, unchanging God has given you an unchanging identity and called you His beloved son or His beloved daughter. And David is struggling with this, I can tell, because of what the rest of the psalm says. He's standing in the crucible between God and these people who are after him. He's reminding himself of these truths. In another psalm, he writes this, my soul will be, says to God, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And David just mentioned where the battle is. It's at night. Have you noticed? Have trouble sleeping? Get up in the middle of the night and have trouble going back to sleep because the thoughts come rushing in, coping with all kinds of crazy mechanisms, trying to get yourself back to sleep, trying to get yourself back to peace. That's real. That's why David said, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. It's all pictures. Did you get it? David is telling us of a moment of great vulnerability. I'm a king, but I have to go to bed too. And sometimes I stay up all night, and here is my discipline. Here is my choice. In those moments, I think about you. And I find comfort and satisfaction as if a banquet were set before me because I remember that I can have shelter under your wings. So the anxious king laying awake at night is like a little baby chick running to mother hen and being put safely under her wings. It's pictures, it's poetry, it's songs. David knows where the battle is when you're anxious and when people are after you. It's at nighttime. It's in getting to sleep, staying asleep, not waking up constantly and being troubled. Which brings me to verse 4. And here's the part that I struggled with. I'm just going to bring you into the study. Is that okay? Verse 4 says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. And here's the question. Who's David speaking to? Did you hear all the different answers? Here was my initial impression on reading this, just quickly in English with no Hebrew helps, no commentaries. I thought to myself, David is speaking to himself. He does this all the time. He is continually telling himself, remember David, remember David, remember David. 
Don't be troubled, my soul. Why are you downcast within me, O my soul? And there's wisdom there. I just read you from Psalm 63 that David is telling himself and telling Israel what he does in the watches of the night. I think on God. I remember his faithfulness. I'm satisfied with God late at night. I take shelter and remember that I have shelter in God. It's quite possible that David is speaking to himself. He does that all the time. You do it too. You should always be careful what you say to yourself because nobody talks to you more than you do. (laughs) And if you can, you should learn to speak to yourself and say things to yourself that God would say to you. Are you aware that your Heavenly Father, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if, in other words, if you've turned to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and you are truly with the Lord, do you know that your Heavenly Father will never speak abusively to you? I call myself an idiot about 50 times a day. <laughs> Sometimes I say it because it's so obvious, I might as well get it out of the way and let my, <laughs> let my family know that I'm, this time I'm aware. But God would not speak to me that way, which is a humbling thought. God knows how wrong I am and how often mistaken and sinful and selfish I am, but He has made me His beloved child. And a plot twist about good parents, they don't abuse their kids, not even with their words. No wise, loving parent ever set out to make their child feel worthless hopeless. So in Psalm 4, my initial reading was that David is speaking to himself. But then I looked at all kinds of different things, and I'm convinced at this. This is heavy. This is maybe why I didn't see it, because it's so counterintuitive. I think David is speaking to his enemies. Look at the context. O sons of men, verse 2. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But no. See, it makes all the difference, and there's more reasons than this, but just the simple context, which is the most important thing in reading the Bible, it makes all the difference if you keep reading verse 3 as a continuation of verse 2. I need you to see it. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? In other words, you're wrong. You're turning my honor into shame. You're loving things that are worthless. You are trying to deceive the people around me. But know that the Lord has set the godly man, has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. What if David were saying that to them? This is the king of Israel after all. What is he asking his opponents, his pursuers to do? Come back to God. Relent of your wickedness by coming back to God. Verse 4, tremble and do not sin. In Hebrew, that can also mean quake, stand in awe, 
and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. One of the reasons I believe David is speaking to his opponents is because David already does. He's already doing those things. Now, it doesn't make that much of a difference if you believe that David is speaking to himself or maybe turning to Israel and reminding godly people how to act. That's a legitimate option. But I'm just telling you, I'm convinced that David is doing something kingly and wonderful that anticipates the grace of Christ where he turns to his enemies and pleads with them to be reconciled to God. So number two, when everybody's after you, Try to care about their relationship with God. And the word try is on purpose. Because when they're really after you, you don't necessarily want them to have a relationship with God. <laughs> you agree with David in Psalm 58, verse 6, where he said, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. <laughs> Tear out the fangs out of the young lions. You ever feel that way? God, get them. They're after your favorite child. You love me. You already told me so. They're after me. Come, just come on down and smack them around, God, and let me see and hear about it, even on Facebook. Let me see that you've publicly ruined their lives, and I will be sure to give you the honor and the praise, right? I don't think that's what's happening here. I think the king is behaving in a kingly fashion. Can't be sure, but if this really is Absalom and the hearts, as it says in 2 Samuel, the hearts of Israel have gone after Absalom, he still cares about them. He wants them to remember their covenant relationship with God. He wants them to remember that they too can have the grace of God. And David is doing his kingly, godly best to say, listen, God will vindicate me. He listens to me when I pray. He has set godly people apart for himself. I know I can speak to him and trust him. I want you to go home and stand in awe of God. When you lay down on your bed tonight, I want you to meditate on what you've chosen to do against me and come back to God and, verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Now, is there a biblical idea anywhere in Scripture that we who know God should pray for people who don't and ask them not to be judged but to be reconciled with God? Any hint of that in the Bible? Listen to Jesus. Read this with me. This is Jesus speaking. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See the connection? You're already in God's family. You're stable. You're safe. You're secure. Nothing is going to happen to you that your heavenly Father doesn't have control over. And if they persecute you, malign you, ruin your reputation, ruin you financially, ruin you on earth, when you get to heaven with the Lord, it won't matter. In fact, it might make the arrival all the sweeter because you've gone from misery to joy. Elizabeth Elliot, the nearly legendary missionary wife whose husband was martyred in South America, 
said recently to a group of Bible college students that she was convinced in her old age that one of the things that God did when He allowed Christians to grow old is to slowly make life painful and uncomfortable on earth, to pry our hands from things we think we are better, to free them up so that we can have Him in heaven, which is truly the best there is. So since you are a son or a daughter of your Father in heaven, you are free. Jesus says you're not only free, you're commanded to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's how you prove that you actually belong to God. So, number two, try. And try means it's a process and you'll oscillate between bust them in the mouth God and help them come back to you God. How will you feel? Depends on your mood, depends on whether you've had breakfast, depends on how carefully you're paying attention to God at any given moment. But if you want to change your experience of suffering when people are after you, pray not only for yourself and for you to be vindicated, pray for them. It's stunning how often we pray for our own forgiveness and how seldom we pray for the forgiveness of others. Can you think of a time where someone was treating you poorly and you said, God, look at what they're doing and forgive them? I'm convinced that that's why I didn't want to see it. My natural inclination is to talk to God and talk to myself, but the people who are against me, when they're wrong, (laughs) burn them down, God, it'll be fun. You're good at it. I've read the Old Testament. Bring some judgment down. Pray for others to be forgiven. Pray for their relationship with God because the most marvelous thing happens. If they come back to God, guess what happens with your relationship with them? They're no longer your enemies. At the height of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was chastised by an elderly lady after giving a speech that he was asking for the reconciliation of the nation. She was upset that he wasn't calling for their complete destruction. Lincoln said, Dear lady, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? That's what Jesus does. He takes people that are enemies to God and enemies to another. He brings us all to the cross of Christ, says in his death, this is all for you to bring you back to me and to bring you back to each other. Not only can you be friends, you're now family. So try very hard day after day to care about their relationship with God. Verse 6 now. Many are saying, who will show us any good? And that's one of the tricky things in this verse in Hebrew. There are no quotation marks in ancient Hebrew. I think these translators have put it in the right place. David as king is saying, there's a lot of people in Israel, Lord, saying, who shall we go with? Who can help? Who can make our life better? Many are saying, who will show us any good? So he prays, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Now read 7 and 8 with me. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. What do you do? You rest in God's protection. You rest in God's protection because it goes and is greater than your circumstances. Verse 7. 
You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In other words, God, there are people who are after me, and it's going well for them. They've got everything they need. They've got all kinds of grain. They all kind of all have new wine. But I don't need for them to suffer and be defeated to be joyful. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. That is putting your mind on your relationship with God, not your fickle circumstances. Is there precedent in the New Testament for that? Yes. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and let's read this together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is joy, that is gladness beyond circumstances. Verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. It's poetry, but it's precise, because you can lie down and not sleep. That's miserable. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Why, David? Nothing has changed in your circumstances. They're still out to get you. You've prayed for them and asked them to go home and lay down on their bed and think about it and stand in awe of God so that they can be reconciled to God and reconciled to you. But you just wrote this song. Nothing's changed. For all you know, they'll catch you tonight. What are you going to do about that, David? Here's the answer. Read it with me. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm trying to be very practical in the Psalms. Last week, I invited you and challenged you to open your Bible before you look at a screen, especially your phone. I invited you not to use your phone every single time you have to wait, but to try to cultivate a habit of turning to your Bible instead. Here's a different challenge. If you want peace, if you want calm, if you want to grow close to God and enjoy your life more, mind your nighttime routine. If you're falling asleep with the TV on, you're probably miserable. If you're making sure that you're up to the minute before you try to sleep, you're probably anxious. This is an evening prayer. That's what the editor said because of the last verse. Nothing has changed in David's life, but here's his decision. He's come to God. He's spoken to God. He said, I know I will be vindicated. I know I can count on you when I pray to you because you've helped me in the past. He's even prayed for his enemies and asked for them to be reconciled to God. Here's what he's doing at the end. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. May I suggest to you a good motto? Here it is. God, you're in charge. I'm going to bed. I don't know if this is a southern thing or just a quirk of my family, but older people in my family when I was growing up, usually my grandparents, they'd wear down because we had the frenetic energy of young kids on Mountain Dew. <laughs> and my grandmother would say to me, I'm leaving you in charge, I'm going to bed. And I read verse 8 and I thought about this. You don't leave God in charge. He is in charge. You might as well go to bed. God will be there in the morning. He may change your circumstances. He may change your 
troubles overnight, or they may be there in the morning. You know who will be there with you? Your Heavenly Father who loves you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect now on, our, on your word, give people a humble, open heart to commit their circumstances, and maybe even for some, to commit their lives to you. At the end of the service, sometimes I like to invite you to stay in this quiet attitude that you have now and just think about what you've heard. Have you been staying up all night trying to fix it? Faith in your strong God who can change and do anything and who loves you dearly would invite you instead to go to bed, to lie down and sleep. And maybe you're one of those spiritual seekers. There were some here this week. I don't know this week. There's too many of you for me to know the situation. But maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Maybe Jesus is just kind of this distant figure. The Psalms are written a thousand years before he lived, but here's how the unfolding of the Bible points to God. God spoke in all of these words, and then when he was done using words, he sent his own son. And the end of the Bible just announces that miraculous gift of Jesus, come to die for your sins. There's only two people who could possibly be running your life this morning. Either you're running your life or God is. If you've never turned to Christ for salvation in humility and confessed, declared yourself a sinner in need of Him, understood that you've sinned, you've separated yourself from Him, you've acted as if He doesn't exist. Or maybe He exists, but certainly you know better. Can I invite you to turn around? That's what the Bible calls repentance. To turn around and give up on yourself and say, Jesus, I'm turning myself in. I sin, but you save. Please forgive me. I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of my shortcomings. My conscience is troubling me. I deal with that every single day. Come in and cleanse that. Clean my conscience. Give me a new heart. He'll do all of that. He's done it for untold millions, including me. If you do that this morning, you, do, you can just turn to him in prayer. He'll understand, he'll listen, he'll save you if you entrust yourself to Jesus and ask him to be savior and boss. And while the rest of us sing this song and we give this offering, all I would ask you to do is if you're doing that this morning, if you're taking that step of trust in Jesus, find the card in your bulletin, fill it out, let us know how we can get in touch with you. Because I personally want to pray for you, pray with you, give you whatever we can that you might need to start growing in your relationship with God and enjoying this newfound peace. Father, give those who know you already the grace to put their troubles, their anxieties at your feet. For those who may not know you, bring them across the line of faith, I pray. Help them, Lord. Give them grace and humility to trust you, to call you Savior and Lord. And I pray, God, that if anyone here has a need for comfort, for peace, if there's something our church family can do to help, that anyone making a decision or having that need would fill that card out so that we could be in loving service to them this week. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.